I didn't want to get out of bed this morning. It's the day after the day after. January 2. The sauerkraut is gone. Many of the football games have been won or lost. The roses on the parade floats have wilted, and the tree in the corner is dead. There are dried pine needles sticking to my socks. If that weren't bad enough, many of us have to return to work tomorrow. There's no major break in sight. (sighs) Here we are, friends, coming off of a 40-day high-intensity bunch of days beginning with the lead-up to Thanksgiving, then all the preparation and excitement leading up to Christmas, New Year's Eve, and then now. The prospect of the gloomy months of January and February. And heaven forbid you follow the news because things on the horizon appear bleak. And that's why I decided I should just stay in bed this morning because all the excitement is over for another year. And so I'm asking this question today. What do we, what do I rely on when the excitement's over? What do I do when waiting for life's next big high. Here's the deal, folks. There are approximately 1,423 pages in my Bible. Some mathematicians, who obviously have more time on their hands than I do, figure that there are approximately 4,000 years between Adam and Jesus, which makes me wonder. You see... We know that some pretty spectacular events happened during that time. For instance, what happened in the downtime? Think about it. What did our original God's image parents do as they faced the first week outside the Garden of Eden? And Noah, after sheltering with countless animals for uh, approximately 370 days in the confines of the ark. What was day-to-day life like for him after that? And Abraham. What did Abraham do after having that one-on-one conversation with God under a starry sky? Some of you remember Miriam. What did she do after seeing baby Moses fished from the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter? What was her life like? And for that matter, what was Moses' daily routine growing up in the palaces of Egypt? What about the Israelites as they stood on the banks of the Red Sea after walking through it? Now what? We know that they got bored from eating manna from heaven. I wonder, 
How would have I reacted to having the same meal day after day? Joshua, there's a biggie. After marching and marching and marching, he's standing looking at the rubble of the walls of Jericho. What did he do next? You see, there's a lot of downtime between the many spectacular, exciting events chronicled in Scripture. And then there's that 400 years downtime that I mentioned when I spoke on December 10th, that period of time when God didn't speak. A 400 block of silence between the close of the Old Testament and that O Holy Night we sang about just last Sunday. Remember? The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. So I'm asking you this morning, what do we do when the thrill is gone and God seems to be absent? Am I the only one? Do you ever feel that your spiritual life is one big roller coaster? You love those highs and you feel like you're losing control on the downside. But let's be truthful this morning. Most of our life is not spent on a roller coaster. In fact, much of our lives are spent kind of waiting in line. The day-to-day, the not highs, the not lows, the just being. Now what? My day job is that of a teacher. So we're going to take a quick quiz this morning. And so just feel free to uh, shout out your answers. These are all based to see if you were paying attention the last couple of weeks here at Connectus Church. Number one, is everybody ready? Just shout them out. You don't have to raise your hand. I, we don't do that anymore in most schools. Just shout it out. Okay, here we go. Number one, the heir to David's throne is to be born to Mary, who is a... Oh, nice job. Very good. Number two, because of an infamous poll tax and census, Mary and Joseph must go to where? You're on a roll, folks. Yeah, they went there for a census. Number three, while there, Mary gave birth to... Yes, in a lowly stable. And number four, angelic hosts proclaim this news to who come to worship the newborn king. Number five, final question here. Several years later, wise men from the east come in response to something above a, a star. Okay, nice job. Okay. Yes, they witnessed the star, and they recognized this as a proclamation of the birth of a Jewish king. How many of you knew all your answers? Go ahead. So I want you to turn to your neighbor, if you got all the answers right, and brag this morning. Just, just tell them you, you, you got them right. Good deal. Okay, there's enough of that. We don't want anybody getting too prideful this morning. So here's the deal. In our Hallmark card version of Christmas... 
we kind of jump from the herald angel sending the bewildered uh, shepherds to the stable. We jump from that to the wise men kneeling by the manger. There's a pretty significant time gap between the uh, shepherds and the wise men. And Kevin reminded us just last week that there may have been a good two to three years between that time, between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the wise men. So if you're adding the wise guys to your nativity scene at home, you might want to add two additional people uh, to that story, two people that actually saw the newborn king long before those astrologers from the east came. So we want to pick up the story this morning with some verses that are frequently skipped in the Christmas narrative. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 24. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles available in the lobby. We'd love for you to take one with you this morning. Uh, so when you leave this morning, just see the good folks there at the Welcome Center. Reading from Luke 2, 21 to 24. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel, even before he was conceived. Then it was time for the purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We don't often read that when we're doing our Christmas services, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. But when we skip verses 21 through 24, we miss events of great importance. First of all, Joseph and Mary had followed through with the message given to them by angels. Name the child Jesus. God asked them to do something. They did it. They did what God asked them to do. We need to remember this morning that circumcision and the presentation ceremony were clearly established. Uh, these were not options in the Jewish community. While Jesus' circumcision established him as Jewish, the rite of circumcision was the physical representation of God's covenant to Abraham. I want to repeat that because it's important. The rite of circumcision was the physical representation of God's covenant to Abraham. It's hard for me, and if you were following the words to some of that uh, worship time this morning, uh, and talking about God in the flesh and, and, and forming the rocks that became his tomb and, and all that good stuff. Think about this. It is hard for me to wrap my tiny little brain around the fact that God who made and gave the original covenant 
and established guidelines with Abraham, this same God who is now literally in the flesh was humbling himself and submitting himself to this ritual. And that presentation ceremony was also not an option. It was an obligatory it was obligatory according to the law of Moses. It was a ceremony that was done hundreds of times, hundreds of times throughout the, the New Testament. We see examples of Jesus fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And let there be no mistake. Jesus was and is the long-awaited Savior. And it is within the context, 40 days after Jesus is born, that we meet two often overlooked individuals, nearly forgotten individuals in the Christmas story. Luke 2, 25 to 32. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So, when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. And if we jump a few verses to 236 to 38, we read that somebody else was there. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she was very old. Her husband had died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to, re, uh, to rescue Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna, they weren't there the night Jesus was born. They weren't in the fields being serenaded by a host of angels. In fact, they weren't on some Middle Eastern ziggurat counting stars with the Magi. They were doing what Jewish people should have been doing for century after century. They were waiting. They were waiting for God's promise of salvation. 
That had to have been a banner moment for Simeon and Anna. They were old. They had waited a lifetime to see God's promised one. And then that day they met Jesus face to face. And that day ended and life went on. You see, life is like that. We have special, once-in-a-lifetime, exciting moments. And life goes on. Even for Joseph and Mary, with the exception of a rapid trip to Egypt and an episode of a missing child in Jerusalem, we don't really know much about anything. We don't know about Joseph in his carpenter shop. We don't know how many times Mary changed diapers. We don't know... We don't know about their life, their day-to-day life. It would appear that they lived a routine life. We don't have any record of any more angelic visits. There's no more astonishing stars in the sky for them. And I'm just getting started. Think about these guys. Matthew, Peter, John, the Twelve. What was daily life really like for these guys? And then there are those names that we skip over, like Onesimus, Artemis, Zenus, Dorcas, Apollos, early believers. What was life for them as they awaited letters from the Apostle Paul? And speaking of Paul, what was his daily life like when not in prison? And truth be told, we know a lot more about the Apostle Paul's daily life then we know about lesser disciples. I love that. Lesser disciples. <laughs> I mean, I would, to be a disciple of Jesus, walking with him day by day. Uh, yeah, but I'm talking about guys like Simon the Zealot or Bartholomew. What do we really know about them? What was life like for any of the characters we read about in Scripture? between those important events that are chronicled in our Bibles. Which leads me back to where I started this morning. What about us? The holidays are officially over. Now what? What's next? I I really appreciate when Kevin gives me the opportunity to speak. To be honest, I didn't know if anybody would show up this morning. (laughs) This particular Sunday does feel very much like the day after the day after. If I wonder, I really wonder, if I weren't speaking, if I would have gotten out of bed this morning. There's a pretty good chance I'd still be at home drinking a third cup of coffee. Knowing up that we completed the Do You See What I See messages last week and knowing that Kevin will be starting this balancing series next week, I kept wondering, what, what, what should I cram into this particular Sunday when I don't think anybody's going to show up? So I asked Kevin if he wanted me to speak about something in particular, and he kind of gave me free range. He said, yeah, you can 
share perhaps something that you learned during the past year or, or maybe something that, uh, a life's verse, something like that. Uh, knowing that I'll be three quarters of a century old at this same time next year, I've learned several things, not just in this past year, but perhaps over the course of a lifetime. One of them is, drum roll please, I do not like waiting. I am not a patient person. I know those of you that are living, listening online and know me, that are part of my family, you would be saying a loud amen or roaring laughing at this time because I am not patient, not at all. When I was growing up in the 60s, it was very common for churches on New Year's Eve to hold watch night services. Basically, these services were kind of a Christian option for those who didn't want to spend New Year's Eve getting, well, let's be blunt, partying, getting blitzed. Uh, did any of you grow up with watch night services? Any of you? Yeah, a few of you. A couple of you. Uh, the, it, it's, it's not really a, a, a thing that has, has dropped out of sight. In fact, the, the origins of watch night services, you can trace back. Some people would say that watch night services began with the children of Israel the night before Passover, as they were watching and waiting and praying, knowing that, 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 that the angel of death was going to pass over them. Uh, some people say that the watch night services began with the Moravian tradition. They were, they were great missionaries, and they hosted these watch night services in their various uh, churches around the globe. Others point to Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, so that December 31st, 1862, the night before the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, was definitely a watch night for uh, those African-American slaves who were waiting for their freedom. The watch night services of my youth were scary affairs, if you will, uh, calling for the repentance of sins, asking God for forgiveness and mercy. Even the hymns sung during those watch night services were somber much of the services were heavy and guilt-laden with people sobbing as they repented and promised God to do better, a kind of Christian version of New Year's resolutions. Now, I don't mean that description to be snarky or unkind. These dear uh, believers from my past were at the service specifically to observe the call to watch and wait for the fulfillment of Jesus' own promise to return. The emphasis on those watch night services was, to call, was this call to watch, wait, and be prepared, which brings me back to Simeon and Anna. Luke 2.25 tells us, that there was this man, we read this before, but I want to repeat it, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous, devout, and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. 
the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he had revealed to him that Simeon would not die until he saw the Messiah. So Mary had her angel visitor, as did the shepherds. Joseph had several dreams. The wise men had a star. We don't know how God's spirit spoke to Simeon. I'm not even sure that that matters how. But this much I can tell you, a righteous and devout Jewish man as Simeon was would have known scripture. I'm told that there are over 300 scriptures in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus as the promised one. In fact, later in his ministry, Jesus would turn to Jewish leaders and he would remind them from John 5, 39, this, he would remind them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These, these scriptures are the very scriptures that testify about me. Simeon knew these scriptures and he believed them. He believed those Old Testament scriptures and prophecies and he was eagerly waiting to see them fulfilled. Simeon and Anna didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. They believed it. They waited. And they saw the Messiah's advent. And there was more to come. There is more to come. While they didn't have the New Testament, we do. Get this. Of the 216 chapters in the New Testament, there are over 300 references to the return of Jesus Christ. 23 of the 27 New Testament books mention his return. In my mind, it is more than ironic that we just celebrated a holiday that emphasized mankind's long-awaited promise, promise of a Messiah, and the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. And for some of us, we've lost the desire to see the rest of the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled. So when Kevin told me that I could speak about something I've learned during my rather long lifetime, it's this. I'm not certain that I'm really watching and waiting for Jesus. What? What did Foreman just admit to? Stick with me, because I believe Simeon and Anna have a great, a huge deal to tell us about waiting. Simeon watched diligently and eagerly waited for Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. We could compare him to another righteous man in Scripture, one referred to as a man after God's own heart, David. David's desire to seek God was so great, 
he refers to eagerly desiring God as the need for water in a dry, desolate place in Psalm 63. And again, in Psalm 119, verse 166, the psalmist states, I hope and wait with complete confidence for your salvation, O Lord. Simeon knew God's word, and he knew its promises. More importantly, he believed them. So watching for the fulfillment of God's promised Messiah was something that was deeply ingrained in him. I don't think we can or should overlook the adverb eagerly waited. There was anticipation. There was growing excitement. There was complete trust that God's promises would happen. And so, Simeon waited with confidence. Let's return to Anna in Luke 2, 36 to 38. And again, I'm going to reread it because it's important because we so frequently skip this during the Christmas season. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Now, if we accept that Mary was approximately 14 or 15 when she was engaged, and we can assume that that was true for, for Jewish girls at that time, then we could assume that Anna was a similar age when she was married. Her husband dies after seven years. The big events, the exciting events of Anna's life died with her husband's passing. So let's say she was, well, let's, let's assume she was about 22 when her husband died. Now at 84, she has been in the temple nonstop for 62 years. As a prophet, she would have been keenly aware of the prophecies concerning a coming Messiah. And she waited. Anna was committed 24-7 for 62 years. Specifically, Anna was devoted to worshiping God with fasting and praying to God. Worshiping God 24-7. Last week, I was listening to a Christian radio station while driving and heard someone make this statement. Worship means something different to everyone. When I hear Christian music, I feel good. I feel good. Okay, I, 
I get it. There's validity in that. I like to start my day by playing my Apple Music Library while I shower. Specifically, I like Phil Wickham, Red Rocks Worship, and Michael Card. It's a particular favorite. Makes me feel great. And it's a super way to start the day. That's not necessarily what Scripture has to say about worshiping. If we look at Romans 12, 1 to 2, it reads, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let your bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So I guess another thing that I've learned this past year is that my idea of worship may need to be reconsidered. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells me that I need the mind of Christ. All too frequently, I'm afraid, my idea of worship is based on some kind of emotional buzz rather than a transformed mind. True worship is being grounded with the knowledge of all, everything that God has done for us by giving him our hearts, our hands, our minds, our thoughts, everything, and replacing the world's wisdom with the truth of God's word. I'm not sure who made this statement, but it goes like this. Emotions are wonderful things, but unless they are shaped by a mind saturated in God's truth, they can be destructive and out-of-control forces. It's extremely easy to get caught up with the emotional wisdom of the world today. Many of us are surrounded by it at work, at home, in the news, what we read. In desiring to be nice and loving, we, I, frequently fail to seek God's truth. Worship involves turning our entire being over to God and allowing him to transform us. Back in November, our good brother John Munchell arranged for an evening with Global Disciples. I'd had some minor surgery earlier that day, and I felt, well, lousy. But I came to connect us. And as I watched the film that night and saw men and women from around the globe praising Jesus, I was convicted. In particular, there was a young man from Myanmar who shared his faith. For fear of retribution, his face was shadowed. Yet his words radiated with his understanding 
of all that Jesus had done for him. And even knowing that his own life could be forfeit, he spoke of his love for Jesus and all that Jesus had done for him. Even with his face blocked, hope radiated in this man's testimony. Love for his Savior was manifested in his words. He was waiting and watching, not for the infant Jesus, but the resurrected Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, this brother in the oppressive state of Myanmar who could be called upon at any moment to give his life because of his faith was like Simeon and Anna, watching, waiting, worshiping, praying, and sharing his faith. Christmas 2021 is past. Our new year has begun. The excitement of the holidays are gone. And we're back to the routine of daily life. My question for myself this morning, my question for you, now what? What's next? Is my life all about the next big event on the calendar? Is it prepping for my next class? Is it prepping for a job advancement or looking forward to one? Is it uh, looking forward to a wedding, a birth? What exactly am I waiting for? I believe, as believers, we need to become like those two nearly forgotten individuals in the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. Like them, we need to watch for the one who says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Like them, we need to wait for the one who says, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour when Jesus will return. And while we wait, we need to be worshiping him, the lamb who was slain to redeem us and transform us. We need to be praying without ceasing. And while we wait, we need to be sharing the good news to many who are unaware that unto us a child is born, a Savior, Jesus, the Savior. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to redeem us. Thank you for our salvation through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray as we look forward to the coming days of this new year, that we would be faithful in watching, waiting, sharing. Jesus, thank you for this time together this morning. Be with us. I pray this in your name. Amen.